0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, listener. Do you have something to say? Then you're already a podcaster. You just don't know it yet. Whether you love to shoot the breeze with friends, have an urge to share your passions with the world, or even want to grow your business, you've got something worth saying with a podcast. With Acast, it couldn't be easier to start your own show. Launch, grow, and make money from your podcast across all listening platforms. If you have something to say, you're a podcaster. Head over to Acast.com to get started for free.
1: Oregon and the nation are at another COVID crossroads, and this time things look more optimistic. But that doesn't mean everyone is in the same proverbial boat. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, Amy Green and Fedor Zarhin, two of my colleagues who've reported on the pandemic extensively, in Fedor's case before we knew COVID was in Oregon. We talked about this moment in time two years into COVID life, what the end of the indoor mask mandate, March 12th, means symbolically and practically speaking, what this moment means for our most vulnerable residents, and much more. Here's our conversation. Imi Green, Fedora Zarhin, thanks for coming back on the show.
2: You're very welcome. Thanks for having us.
1: So we've done these periodic check-ins at inflection points in the pandemic, and we're certainly at another one. We've hit the two-year mark. Imi, it's kind of crazy to say two years now, but how did year two of the pandemic in Oregon compare to year one?
0: Well, I think it surprised a number of people that it was worse for Oregon and for the nation. Oregon had three and a half time more known COVID cases, 70% more deaths in year two in year one, and that was largely because of the Delta wave, as well as the beginning and the peak of the Omicron wave was at the tail end of year two. Now, I'll say that Oregon, once again, did much better than the rest of the nation. The nation saw record cases, record hospitalizations, and record deaths more than at any other point in the pandemic. Oregon managed to not um, set a new record for hospitalizations and deaths, with the exception of children. Child cases, there was a record set with hospitalizations, although relatively low, somewhere in the the 40s as far as child patients with COVID in the hospital in early February. But yeah, overall, um, we we, I guess we should look at the positive that year two in Oregon wasn't as bad as um, year two for the rest of the nation. And I think part of it is because Oregonians have been more cautious in wearing masks and limiting indoor social gatherings than many other parts of the country.
1: Fedor, you and I did a one year retrospective, which was a year ago now. Um, you know, another year has passed, and now we're at this. Uh, this point where we're going to talk about lifting the mask mandate in a minute here. But uh, what are your thoughts when you kind of think of this milestone?
2: I mean, I think a lot of us are thinking about the ups and downs and the hopes and devastations uh, that have come and gone here over the last year in particular. I mean, if we go back to last summer, there was the equivalent of a mission accomplished banner. Uh, yeah. Here And nationally, we're not seeing that right now, I think, like that same kind of fanfare. Like, so people have been kind of humbled in a way and accepting that you know, there's only so much that we can really predict here. And we felt all of that with Delta and then Omicron came. I mean, it was just like, like really bringing the point home um, that there's uh, a limit to how much can be done or prevented here. Also, I think it's interesting that the for a long time, the vaccinations and uh, vaccine hesitancy was really driving a lot of the overall narrative about how things are going. And like, if we just get more people mm-hmm. vaccinated, more people vaccinated, more people vaccinated. Uh, and that's not really the the central focus anymore, I think, as much, not, not even close, really. Uh, we've also come to accept that there's going to be some X percent of the population that's not going to want to get vaccinated. And that's just a plain reality. And the sort of what was unthinkable before, which was, well, if we're not going to get vaccinated, then we're going to get natural immunity is sort of what's come to um, to closer to coming to pass. I think per OHA right now in Oregon, we're at eighty three percent with some immunity um, and I don't know exactly what percentage of that is from people getting actually getting sick, but I imagine it's a sizable percentage. so the, the, so it's, it's just interesting to see the kinds of things that we've come to accept and live with where like this attitude, this idea of being able to control, Uh, more than we can actually control um that's kind of subsiding yeah now i think which might even be reflected in some of the new rules and protocols are going to be changing here in the next several weeks
1: yeah well let's talk about that Uh, i mean you reported um on why oregon is lifting the mass indoor mass mandate it's going to be finally lifted or kind of stunningly lifted, lifted, I guess, depending on how you look at it, on March 12th. Why are we doing that? And why is Oregon one of the last states in the country to do that?
0: Because people really, really don't want to be forced to wear a mask. (laughs) And that's, you know, I I understand it. There is a significant portion of Americans and Oregonians who hate wearing masks. It depresses them. It reminds them of the pandemic and disease. And they are very tired and want to get back to normal life and don't want to be reminded that this virus all around us, albeit at vastly declining levels, thankfully. When I talk to infectious disease experts, doctors, public health experts, They say, of course, we should continue wearing masks. It greatly benefits the fight against COVID. If you're asking me as a scientist, they say, yes, like keep the masks. And a number of them tell me that they will continue to wear masks after Oregon lifts its mask mandate March 12th. And also you can look at other parts of the world, like many Asian countries have incorporated masks into their lives seasonally. Mm -hmm. After SARS in 2003 hit parts of Asia hard, masks became something that were accepted as and seen as useful. But I wasn't quite sure um, earlier in the pandemic of Americans would accept masks. And I think we're getting our answer that uh, it's not something that we collectively, that most people want to be told they have to do. I will say that I think Portland, the Portland area is a little bit different. I see much higher mask usage here. And I think that that's actually going to continue, um, after March 12th. But to answer, circle back and answer yeah. your question as to why we are one of the last to lift the mask mandate. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with um, we were willing to accept a mask mandate in the first place. Most states at one point did have a mask mandate during the pandemic. It was 38 states at the peak. Um, that got whittled down to about a dozen states that either had mask mandates in schools or indoor public spaces um, during the Omicron surge. And now that's been um, whittled down to just a couple. Washington, Oregon, Hawaii um, will be the last to lift their Mask mandates, probably Hawaii being the last, um yeah, so it all I think has to do with attitudes and acceptance, um and just people being more cautious about the pandemic and worrying more about the virus
2: well, I was just going to say, I mean also I think the subtext there might be also like the politics of the state, I mean Oregon is pretty heavily on the democratic side, and we've seen through the last two years it's been um. That, uh, is related to COVID restrictions and following COVID restrictions. Also, you know, honestly, to some extent, I wonder to what extent the mask mandate and other restrictions are actually being followed in all parts of the state. So, uh, parts here, say in the Portland area, uh, I imagine there's greater you know, consistency with following them before and, you know, and after.
1: Um Fedora I'm curious uh, I mean mentioned talking to experts and what they have to say about whether mass should be continued. Uh, I know you've done reporting on on people who are either immunocompromised or are have long covid. I mean what what are some of those conversations that you've had with people about how they're feeling right now at this specific moment in in uh, in our covid lives?
2: People with long COVID that I've talked to, I mean, they completely understand and appreciate the fact that the rest of the state wants to move on. People want to stop wearing their masks, want to just go back, like Amy said, to go back to living like life is normal. Just for these individuals, it might take longer, or much longer for life to quite go back to normal you know one of the things that someone i talked to really um highlighted was this um just th- this desire for some mu- mutual respect right so if someone decides to keep wearing a mask uh because they are immunocompromised or because they have a child under 5 can't get vaccinated or any other reason mm-hmm. for just that decision to be treated with some um you know respect and for people to not feel like they're uh, somehow separate from society, uh, if they decide to try to protect themselves like that. I think also this speaks to kind of the longer term fallout from the pandemic. The director of uh, Kaiser Permanente's long COVID clinic there, she was, th- the metaphor she used was that people with long COVID are sort of like the debris on the shore of the pandemic. There's been this storm. There's been these cataclysmic two years that affected everybody and then afterwards there's going to be like cleanup essentially there's going to be people who uh, are going to be affected for a much longer time than the rest of us and like that's going to be the the challenge of the next x number of years
1: do you look at the debris or are you staring out to the horizon
2: i guess yeah i, I don't know i mean they didn't they stayed with the metaphor they left the metaphor there
1: Well, I think that points to kind of this question. I mean, is this really the end um, or are we just kind of collectively deciding that this is the end of COVID uh, in terms of massive restrictions?
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, we're collectively deciding it's over. I mean, it's not never literally going to be over, right? So, of course, there's this collective decision that is fed by innumerable Factors, right, that we've talked about, but not least of which, though, is these declining hospitalizations and cases. In fact, plummeting hospitalizations and cases and increased uh, immunity across the board. There's the cost benefit analysis, right, and that's where we've fallen.
1: So, I mean, I'm curious if you had this story that was pretty interesting, right? Fedora mentioned the previous you know, storyline was about vaccine mandates and vaccine hesitancy and how that really dominated the news cycle for quite a while. And then as you reported, Governor Brown walked back an order that had 40,000 state employees required to be vaccinated. Can you explain kind of what the deal is with that and what that says, if anything, about COVID life?
0: It's difficult for me to understand the governor's thinking because I'm not getting my questions answered when I reach out to the governor's office. They're not answering many of my questions. And, you know, I really do want to understand what the governor's thinking. I, I think what she said is that the time for emergency orders is over and uh, we need to learn to live with this virus. Um, but the confusing part, I think, is why we would not require vaccines anymore because all along the governor and so many medical experts have been saying the way to eventually emerge from this pandemic is getting people vaccinated. And uh, the mandate for executive branch employees, almost 40,000 of them, Mm -hmm. which the governor is lifting on April 1st, that mandate um, was part of that effort to get um, people vaccinated, if the climate is getting better, if there really aren't that many COVID cases around this spring, what about this summer or this fall if and when the next variant hits? I think that's the concern out there. Like, if we want to get back to normal life, the argument is, why wouldn't we uh, make sure that as many people are vaccinated as possible? Now, I will say, as of now, the mandates still stand for healthcare workers and children tw- K through 12 school employees, um, they still are required to be fully vaccinated. There are, um, solo, some localities like Multnomah County that say they're still going to require that their employees be fully vaccinated. I think the future is a little bit uncertain as far as whether that will change or not, especially with the, the governor setting the precedent and saying that, you know, we don't need the vaccine mandate for executive branch employees in the state. And that would be, I should say, um, Oregon State Police, Department of Corrections, correctional officers, child mm-hmm. welfare workers, um, Oregon Health Authority employees, Department of Transportation workers, even uh, employees at the governor's office.
1: Yeah, I think at one point, you know, I mean, a lot of us were thinking, well, this is going to be something like uh, the flu shot or other vaccines that are required for kids to go to school. That's not clear cut, right? <laughs> at this point, that this is going to be uh, on the checklist that you just do as a parent to, to send your kids to school.
0: Yes, it's it's constantly changing. You know, it was uh, for most people, two shots if they went with Moderna and uh Pfizer BioNTech vaccines, um, then, uh, we were told, you know, it's really a good idea to get a booster and it really is a good idea to get a booster. Just being quote unquote fully vaccinated does not provide much, um, protection against infection, although it still does provide, um, what may be some significant protection against severe disease, um, really getting boosted when you look at the numbers, um, Results in far fewer hospitalizations and death than people who didn't get vaccinated at all. And even notably, um, people who, who just became fully vaccinated. But yeah, I think that it turns some people off to think I'm going to have to go in again and again, or hey, I'm good enough. I'm, I'm fine. I got, got my first two vaccinations.
1: Fedor, what do we know at this point about what the mask mandate going away will mean for school districts? I'm sure there's going to be a patchwork of policies, right?
2: Yeah. So right now, schools are going to be able to choose starting uh, March 12th and how exactly they're going to go. It's not yet clear. We We don't have any indication that there's any schools in the Portland area, at least so far. Uh, that have decided they would keep a mask mandate, that, that, that they would continue to require masks. I think some have been waiting on the Department of Education to release new protocols, uh, for ensuring kids, uh, are safe. Um, and these protocols were released. We're still looking through them, contain some interesting tidbits. Like, for example, apparently, uh, quarantining and contact tracing, uh, will no longer be happening in schools at least no longer will be required um so yeah i think it it very well could be a patchwork but i would expect to see if there's going to be districts or schools that decide to keep masks i would imagine they would be in the minority
1: let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk more with fedora zarhin and aimee green So, what has it been for you two covering the various waves of the pandemic? And you've both been assigned to this for so long. How are you feeling at this point in time? I mean, let's start with you.
0: How I feel personally is I do feel better, um, about, uh, the future. So, um, You know, it's been a difficult thing, I think, for everyone to see the past two years and as a reporter, certainly. But, you know, I look toward the future and I do feel like the worst may be behind us, but we always need to be prepared for future waves and we need to take precautions. I do kind of have a, I guess, um, a hopeful outlook um, with some realism thrown in there that um, we don't know what's coming. But I also look at just what's happened so far in the pandemic and feel worried that maybe we're not taking things as seriously as we should be. We're not preparing like we should be with stockpiles of masks and tests and improving our building ventilation and monitoring for variants. We're not doing these things to get ready. And that worries me that there's a general sense that all the people who've been sickened, um the more than 25,000 Oregonians who've been hospitalized who have COVID, the more than 6,500 who've died. I think it's sad that some dismiss COVID deaths as just in the very old or people with underlying conditions. So um, somehow it matters less, which by the way, of course, it's not true. Most deaths are in the elderly and people with underlying conditions, but that's not always true. In January, there was a 12-year-old girl in Marion County who died from COVID, but but if you do want to talk about the impact to kids, um, more worldwide, more than 5 million kids have lost a parent or a caregiver to COVID. And I think this is a disease with very severe complications that are preventable in most of the population with vaccines. There's two things we can do that actually have very little impact on our lives that could make this pandemic better. And that would be, uh, vaccines and wearing masks when appropriate, um, in indoor settings, maybe in, in crowds. Um, and, you know, I, I wish that we would see more of that. Um, that would give me more hope for the future. Dr. Ashish Jha, he's a public health dean at Brown University, and he had tweeted out this tweet a few months ago, and it's just stuck with me. He said, There is a viral disease where most infections are mild, asymptomatic, with a very low fatality rate, and large age gradient. Kids are even lower risk than adults, and less than 1% of kids have any serious complications at all. Yep, polio, and we vaccinate against it. Hmm. And when I read that, I thought, yeah, like, why is there this thing about COVID vaccinations, um, mRNA technology is a couple decades old, and I hope that people become more accepting that getting vaccinated is an easy way to make this pandemic better.
1: Yeah, I don't want to gloss over those numbers you mentioned earlier, 25,000 hospitalizations in Oregon. That's like the equivalent of the entire population of Forest Grove being hospitalized over the last two years and 6,500 dead. That's like the population of, of Brookings, you know, all dying. So, I mean, those are real numbers and, and real lives and the, the ripple effect is is beyond just those figures, obviously. Fedor, I want to ask you that, that same question. You know, I often think of your coverage from the very, very, very early days when we were still in the office and washing our hands aggressively and you were on the ground uh, reporting from some of the uh, assisted care facilities. I mean, you have been reporting on this for so long. How how are you thinking about this moment in time?
2: I think I'm curious to see how our collective attention is going to be directed and redirected because I think there's a lot more going on that really will become pertinent kind of in the in the aftermath because i mean over the course of two years it's not just like individuals that got sick and died but there's really an impact on the whole system like for example with the great resignation and healthcare workers leaving long term care facilities really expanding what qualifies as a caregiver because they don't have enough caregivers like how is that whole industry for example uh going to change you know then we look at things like how um you know er early on i think the director of the health authority was saying that uh one of the what structural issues that made the early months in particular so tough was how um decentralized the whole healthcare or the whole public healthcare system is like every county kind of has its own little system and they kind of report back to the state but the state lets them do their thing you know and how that got that that separation got in the way of the state's work early on um, so Uh, where I'm at is I'm just curious to see what the fallout's going to be really, how these things are going to surface, uh, going forward. I think they'll surface in millions of little ways in our lives that we'll notice or not notice, um, but they're going to be there.
1: Has it become harder to tell these stories about people with long haul COVID, um, are these long haulers, or the immunocompromised, or the the people who who we may not pay attention to as much, or the 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 deaths, or is it is it still hard, or has it become almost rote because we've been doing this for two years?
2: Hard in what way?
1: No, just emotionally, or you know, logistically, any anything, just in terms of like your process. I mean, you've been
2: you've written a lot of really challenging stories. I think the, ch- the challenge is just finding a way to say something n- new in a way uh, that for, cause I'm writing for readers, right? Every individual's tragic story and tragedy isn't in- an individual tragedy. I mean, it doesn't need embellishment or something new, but still we do write for an audience that um, after two years might uh, be tired of reading about the same kind of pain and tragedy over and over and over and over and over again right like for the person experiencing it it's brand new right and it is everything but for our readers you know it's not clear um how much attention span that there is or is going to be going forward but still i think with these people's experiences at the end of the day they're all relatable everybody's most people are at some risk of experiencing a similar kind of thing or know someone who is
1: yeah i mean does how about for you i mean th- when you talk to p- some of these vulnerable people you've been reporting on um or you and and Fedor and um and the team uh, at the O, does it do they feel like do you get a sense that people feel like we're just we as a society are just moving on and people are, are abandoning the vulnerable once again
0: well i mean it does feel A little bit like that, especially if you listen to the stories of immunocompromised people, or even to some extent, uh, parents with children under five, they feel like the rest of the world is moving on. Yeah. And forgetting them. And what I try to remind people of in our coverage is that, well, it may not be you, it may not be you who's high risk, but let's try to think about the other people who are at high risk of complications from COVID. Um, but also, let's try to remember when we say, oh, it's that other group that's um, at risk, that is many, many people. Yeah. People who are 65 and older make up a significant part of our population, but also people with underlying conditions. I heard years ago that most people think that they are healthy. Most Americans do, but uh, most Americans aren't healthy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. There, you know, there's many people um, who struggle with being overweight or obese, um, have heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, um, all things that can complicate one's experience with COVID. So, you know, I want, I want people to remember that too. If, if you're not worried about yourself, please be worried about someone else um, out there, but also uh, maybe you should be worried about yourself.
1: Well, that's a good point. Before I let you go, I guess, lastly, when we say that the phrase learning to live with COVID, I mean, what does that mean to you?
0: It it kind of is a code phrase, I feel like, for um, for forgetting COVID a little bit. I am fine and overjoyed and happy to return to um, as normal a life as possible. Um, as long as we take smart measures, um, precautions, um, like I said before, um, really, really focusing on proving building ventilation, the air we breathe. I talked to a University of Oregon architecture professor who studied the spread of COVID through the air. And he said, you know, our buildings failed us when COVID hit um, in early 2020. We determined indoor air in our buildings was dangerous. Our buildings weren't well ventilated enough. We weren't filtering them to protect ourselves from the virus. So buildings are so crucially important, but also preparing in other ways, like even just the mindset of understanding that this could come back um, with a vengeance. Hopefully, um future waves will be milder. We don't know for sure. Um, but but keep that in mind, and that maybe we will need to, if you're if you're going to discard your mask. Now maybe in the future you'll you'll want to put it back on to keep that all in mind. And I hope that living with COVID means that we can enjoy life um, and many joys with friends and family and doing the things that we used to. But that we realize that not everybody may be as comfortable as doing the things that others are doing. You know, they may be still wearing their mask and you may not be. Um, and one thing I hope that I don't see is people um, looking down on other people for wearing masks or ridiculing them. I've already been seeing some of that. Um, I worry about kids being teased um, for wearing masks. Just to remember that if you see someone wearing a mask and you think well, what that person is paranoid, just remember you don't know their situation. You don't know their health condition. You don't know if they live with their mother or their grandmother mm-hmm. who's in their 80s. Um, that, you know, just just be considerate and understanding, and um, try not to uh, be judgmental.
1: Show some grace and buy a indoor air filter for a number of reasons. Um, That's it's, right. It's going to help you with the wildfires. Uh, if you get a high MERV filter, and it might help you with, uh, you know, uh, COVID potentially as well. Fedora, what about you? What does that phrase "learning to live with COVID" mean, if anything?
2: I really want to just second what Amy said about um, the kind of mutual respect. And I think learning to live with COVID means learning to live with our own decisions about our own risk, our own decisions about how much respect we want to give others who might have a different perspective than we do. Learning to live with COVID, I think, means not needing, being able to be responsible enough to not need the state to threaten us with a fine for what to do. Thank you
1: both for all of your invaluable reporting. I hope we all learn to to live with grace and uh, humility and embrace this uh, new phase going forward.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared some links to IME and Fedor's recent stories in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show and tell a friend. Help spread the word the best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live you can do that at oregonlive.com pod support until next
2: time